So the reading is Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, You may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid, hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. And it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your rat, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand, and take also from the tree of life, and eat it, and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Let's use Psalm 131 as a prayer to place ourselves now under God's word. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvellous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. 
O people of God, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Well, I've already said what we're uh, on about in terms of these studies that we're going to do. I didn't mention that where we're going to end is uh, in the Gospels tomorrow. I didn't want to just stay in the Old Testament, so tomorrow we will uh, answer the greatest of all questions. Uh, who do you say Jesus is? Well, when I say answer it, we'll uh, reflect on that question. But let's uh, begin in uh, chapter 3 here as we consider these opening questions. And I guess uh, the thing is that you can't really get to the questions without first uh, looking at the context because when God asks Adam, where are you? You need to ask, in a sense, where he's come from. And that takes us right back to chapters 1 and 2. So please uh, allow me to quickly skip over those and just look at what God uh, created to begin with because it's easy to forget that because it really shows God's uh, nature, doesn't it? What was God like? What did he intend for humanity, uh, basically, before we mucked up? Because many of the questions that people challenge God with now seem to forget that this isn't the world that God intended where we're at now. Uh, Even death itself, of course, was not there in the beginning. So to suggest that God willed it uh, is highly questionable. Well, if we go back to chapter 1, we firstly find, of course, that we are made in God's image. doesn't mean we are divine beings. We're not. We are created, but we're created in God's image. And as such, we're his regents on earth, if you like. Uh, We do uh, his role, but delegated uh, by his authority on earth. And as such, we have a vocation. Our vocation is to care for this world, Uh, to fill it uh, with people in our image and to guard its order, the order that God has given. And God explicitly blesses us to do that in chapter 128. God blessed them and then gave the vocation, be fruitful and multiply. It's a very uh, happy start and we are a part of the very good creation or the creation that God declares uh, very good on the sixth day, at the end of the sixth day. And then we get some detail uh, about humanity in chapter 2 that, of course, don't get in chapter 1. We find that we're made from dust from the ground. Um, Again, I'm not wanting to get into the scientific and uh, stuff here. Uh, I think this is a theological, uh, the the important stuff is the theology, but I think when it says Uh, that we are made from dust of the ground, it is stressing that materially we're mortal. Note at the end there, uh, dust you came from, dust you will return to. That expresses our mortality. But of course what gives us life is God, God breathing life into us. So So what's important is that whilst we are mortal, in one sense, as long as we have God's life in us and we have access to the tree of life, which we do at this stage, then there's no reason for death, is there? There is no hint of death in these early verses. Note that the Garden of Eden is not all of creation. Often we just sort of assume that the whole world was some sort of paradise. 
Rather, the garden was planted specifically in the east, and Adam, who was created outside of it, was actually then transferred into it. Now, I think uh, commentators are right in suggesting that uh, the Garden of Eden is really a, 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 a prototype of the temple. It's the place of God's, if you like, focused presence on earth, and there's uh, priestly language used here. The vocation that the man uh, has at this stage and the woman will have too, uh, to till and to keep is actually priestly language. It's cultic language. So there's a sense in which Adam is placed in the garden which reflects heaven. God's presence is there and he does God's work in a special way. It's like a sanctuary. And out of the garden flows a river, which then divides into four and basically waters all of creation. So theologically, there's a sense that this is where life flows from and everything is in order. And there's two trees in the middle of the garden. There's the tree of life, which clearly they can eat from, and then there's the tree of knowledge, good and evil. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about this tree. It is literally the tree of life good and evil. Put a colon in there. It's not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The point being that this tree does not give one discernment. It's not a tree that allows one to choose between good and evil. It's simply a tree which has or gives a knowledge of good and evil, and the reason that the man is not allowed to eat it is that you don't need a knowledge of evil in the Garden of Eden. Am I making sense? You don't need to know evil. In other words, God has given a vocation. He's given permission. He's given permission for Adam to eat of every tree in the garden, every plant of the field, but he has one prohibition, you do not need to know evil. So you're not allowed to eat of that tree. There is a knowledge that is beyond the boundaries and it will lead to death. You can't eat of that. That's the one prohibition. If you want to uh, understand more about or want me to defend that further, I can uh, from other places in Scripture, but there isn't time to talk about it here. Uh, but perhaps just picking up uh, one, uh, the one parallel passage that does, uh, I think, have particular relevance is in Deuteronomy where uh, Moses is telling uh, Israel that they need to stay faithful and he specifically speaks of innocent children who do not yet have a knowledge of good and evil. They don't know good and evil. They're too little. They only know good. Wasn't that a wonderful state when you were a child? You see your grandchildren and think, isn't that wonderful? They're innocent. They don't know evil yet. Well, that's how we were created and that's how we were meant to remain. And then we find that uh, man has naming rights over creation, so man is above animals, but we also find that he is alone and it's not good for him to be alone. And so God makes a helper fit for him. Now the Hebrew is literally a helper opposite to him. 
as in symmetry. The, the word Ezra, the word helper, is normally actually used of God. God is Israel's helper. There's a word for servant, it's Eved. God didn't make Adam a servant, he made him a helper opposite to him, a co-regent in the garden. And uh, Adam is absolutely delighted, as he jolly well should have been, and uh, he says, at last, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And then a very important little uh, conclusion there. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Going back again to the tree of knowledge, these uh, first uh, couple, they were innocent. There was no shame, there was no sin, there was no guilt. They were to live in God's creation under God's terms. And as long as they did that, all in the garden would remain lovely. Well, we know what happens, don't we? Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge. What knowledge do they gain? Do they gain wisdom? No. Their eyes are opened, but the door to life is closed. They lose their innocence. There's a nice little wordplay here. The, the serpent, the word for crafty or shrewd, is arum in Hebrew. The word for naked is urumim. It's not a cognate word, but it's got that assonance, that same sound. They thought they were being shrewd, but they found they were nude to get the same assonance in English. And God comes into his sanctuary. That's where God dwells in the sanctuary on earth. And he knows, of course, that something has gone wrong. And so this question, where are you, Adam? Ask for God's benefit or for Adam's? When God questions us, it's always for our benefit. It's to help us understand what's going on in our lives. We've uh, so got a little granddaughter called Rose, and one of Rose's favourite games is hide-and-seek. And what happens is she grabs you by the hand and she'll often lie down in the middle of the floor and shut her eyes. And she's hiding because she's got her head down and her eyes shut. Adam's hiding is almost as ridiculous as that, isn't it? Or maybe it is as ridiculous as that. Jonah, of course, uh, hid from God. Well, maybe he didn't hide, he just ran away. He thought he could escape God's presence. You can't do that. Isaiah writes this, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. You can't hide from God. Well, obviously, Adam is still in the garden. Where is he? He's still in the garden, but he's afraid. He's ashamed. And he's alienated. And that's what sin does. The very first thing that sin does 
uh, after making us ashamed, is it alienates us from God first, and then from those we love, and finally from creation itself. We see that in the case of Adam. It even, I would suggest, says that he was hiding alone. Notice he says to God, I was ashamed and I hid myself. He doesn't say we hid. He didn't say I hid my wife. He says I hid myself. He's alone uh, in his shame because shame does that. It cuts us off. And he's not attending to his vocation. When God comes looking for him, I imagine he expects him to be about tilling and keeping the ground, doing the work he was called to. But instead, he's playing hide and seek. Where are you with God at the moment? I'm not saying that you have done anything terrible. But the, the new year is a good time to ask, where am I at? Am I hiding? Am I in some sense not attending to the vocation that God has called to me? Maybe as a young person, God is calling you to a particular vocation. Are you running like Jonah? Are you like Elijah? Remember, Elijah also hid from God, ran away to Mount Horeb. Was he at Horeb then or was he still at Beersheba? It doesn't matter. God says, I think he got to Horeb and he was in a cave, wasn't he? God says, where are you, Elijah? In other words, you're not actually doing what I've called you to do. And he sends him off to anoint a couple of kings and a prophet. And then the next question, which I think is uh, in many ways the biggest question for us today. Who told you? Who told you that you were naked? That's actually worth thinking about because who did tell Adam he was naked? I guess it was his conscience. His God-given conscience told him he was naked. But of course the serpent uh, plays a reasonable role here. Um, Adam doesn't do very well, does he? He says... The woman that you gave me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. In other words, his first response is to blame Eve. No, it isn't. His first response is to blame God. You gave me the woman and then she gave me the fruit. We live in a blame culture, don't we? There is a reluctance for people to take responsibility for their own actions. We have what I call fig leaf counsellors who try to help you cover up by blaming other people. I'm not saying all counsellors do that. But until we face the issue of who told us, who are we listening to? And of course the answer for us is we must be listening to God and his word. Satan is so slippery, isn't he? The first thing that Satan does is he talks about God in the third person. To talk about God as if he isn't present is what theologians do. They objectify God. That itself is an arrogance. 
You don't talk about God as if he isn't there, about what he says as if he isn't there. If you study his word, you study under the guidance of his spirit. He is present when we read the word, and we should know that and acknowledge it. So he talks about God, he objectifies God, and suddenly theology takes the place of obedience. He insinuates that either Adam has misrepresented God when he's talking to Eve. Did God actually say? Well, Eve heard from Adam, so he's questioning whether Adam was faithful in representing God or whether maybe Eve had misunderstood or misheard. When Eve makes it absolutely clear that she had heard correctly, in fact she overstates it, we can't even touch the tree, then Satan comes in quite brazenly and his true colours show as he brazenly contradicts what God has said. He claims to know things about God that God won't even reveal. Don't we have theologians like that today who know better what God's thinking than uh, his written word? Jesus uh, had problems with people like this. He says, why do you not understand what I say? This is obviously to the Pharisees. It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Why would you listen to one of God's creatures? even another human being, even someone with a PhD in theology, rather than God's word. If God has said something, it's not for us to challenge or to change it. What the serpent does is he actually challenges God's goodness, doesn't he? He questions whether God has given you what's best for you. I hear that a lot today in the sexuality debate. What the Bible advocates is backward. It's actually oppressive to people today. Unenlightened. I would argue that God still knows what's best for us. It's up to us to work out how that can be made a reality. We need to work out pastorally how to make God's best the best for people rather than to change it and look for another way of giving people something good. Well, the consequences, of course, is that Adam and Eve find that they don't gain wisdom. They just just get shame. Eve is driven by her appetite. She sees that the tree is good for food. Well, if you go back to chapter 2 and verse 9, you find that every tree that God had planted is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So why the attraction to this one tree? This is the warping of desire. It's a delight to the eyes. It's desirable for knowledge. Who says? Well, the serpent said. But God said, don't. There is some knowledge that actually isn't good for you. 
John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the lover of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from God. Sorry, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Be very careful what drives your desires. Once we again deviate from God's word and trust our own senses, then we're almost certain to be drawn in things that are not of God's doing. Is God a spoil sport? Does God want to deny us knowledge? Is God anti-science? Not at all. There's a, a proverb in chapter 25, I think of Proverbs, it's the glory of God to conceal things, the glory of humans to reveal them. Science is good, but there are boundaries to knowledge. There are some places we don't need to go. And this is important, especially for raising our children. When I was at school, I remember distinctly uh, when it came to uh, the classes on human, human reproduction in the fourth form, which was year 10, our teacher actually had to say by law that he had to remove everybody from the class who was under 14 because by law you could not teach basic biology to under 14s. When do children learn about human reproduction today? Is it eight? I think someone, a teacher told me, eight, they're allowed to know these things. Do they need to know then? Is that knowledge that they need? Of course it isn't. But the world says it is. And so this is the sort of thing that's happened, that we have moved the boundaries on knowledge. God, uh, when Adam says that Eve gave him the fruit, then turns to her and asks her, what have you done? Is he asking, what have you done giving Adam the fruit? Or is he asking, what have you done eating the fruit yourself. Well, Eve's a smart woman. She takes it as the latter, doesn't she? She says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's a wonderful cartoon. Oh, it's a, got that picture there, Andrew? This is a uh, bronze relief on a cathedral in France. And, and to me, it's one of the earliest cartoons there's God appearing in the garden and he's pointing at Adam and Adam's pointing at Eve and Eve's pointing at the serpent. And I think it's a, a delightful depiction of how we often operate, isn't it? The first inclination is defensive. Let's defend ourselves. Let's blame somebody else if we, prop, if we possibly can. Well, Eve uh, has to admit in the end that she did eat. She's got to take responsibility for what she did. She has crossed the one boundary that God gave. But more and more sinisterly, she has believed the word of someone over the word of God. And that is the key, isn't it? Once you allow human wisdom or deception to usurp God's commands, then you're in big trouble. God does want us to know things, but God will tell us what we need to know. Uh, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, though that you can only know things of God,
by God's Spirit. He talks about spiritual people who can discern things by God's Spirit. We can't grasp, reach out for knowledge about God that God has not revealed open to us. And the way God seems to work is that the greater our faith, our trust in him, then the more he opens himself to us. We are ready for that knowledge. So let's uh, just summarise that this uh, original sin, if you like, has brought alienation to the creation. What was good, what was very good, what was well-ordered had clear boundaries where there was harmony, where there was innocence because of humans not hearing or obeying God's word, things begin to unravel. We haven't got time to go through God's uh, cursing of the serpent, uh, disciplining of the woman and the man, but the consequences that now things will be tougher where there was goodness, now there is going to be struggle, even struggle between the man and the woman. Note in uh, those verses where the questions were, the first person person, sorry, the first person singular pronoun, I or me or my, comes in ten times. You look at that in, in verses eight to thirteen. Adam and Eve, I, me, my. They are now hiding alone, they're speaking alone, they're speaking against each other, blaming each other. When it comes to verse 15, we read that God says, I'll put enmity between, sorry, in verse 16 to the woman, I will multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. It's interesting because most people take that desire as being sexual desire. It's talked about childbearing. The first two clauses, I'll multiply your pain and childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. That's not actually sexual desire. That is a desire to dominate or rule. This is where feminism was actually born. The parallelisms were the second line, and he shall rule over you. In other words, she will want to rule him. Her desire will be to rule the husband, but he shall rule her. If you uh, wonder where that's come from, go to chapter 4 and verse 7, where God says to Cain, uh, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. It's exactly the same phrase. Sin wants to rule us. We must rule sin Eve wants to rule Adam, but Adam will rule her. It's not God's plan, it's not God's intention, but it is the consequence of the fall. It's not to be fostered, but it's the reality of why we have this struggle. There's alienation with God, there's alienation between husband and wife, and then there's alienation with the ground, which is cursed because of their sin. No longer will it bring forth stuff easily. There is, of course, grace even at this point. Adam and Eve had tried to clothe themselves, not very successfully. I've never tried making clothes out of fig leaves, but I imagine it's difficult. God kills. He sheds blood and covers them with skin before he sends them from the garden. Does that make you think of anyone else whose blood was shed to cover our shame? 
cover our sin. We'll end there uh, tomorrow. But let's uh, just take a moment now uh, to reflect, particularly on where we are with God, particularly on who we are listening to. Who do you read? And what about our desires? Heavenly Father, we do thank you that in spite of what the world says, you are good, you are all wise. And the world you made, your intentions were that we should dwell in your presence, open and innocent before you and one another. Lord, we're mindful that until Jesus returns, we will continue to live in this world, this fallen world, And yet we know that we can already begin to experience the joy of your kingdom. As your disciples now, Lord, we pray that you might speak to us about where we're at with you, what you're calling us to this year. Lord, tell us if we are hiding in any way. And Lord, help us to always listen to your word and to hold it above all other authority, all other wisdom. Lord, show us if there are things that we're listening to, voices we are following that are contrary to your word, influences in our lives which are not good. And Father, we pray for strength to resist the desires that come through the temptations of this world. But things again which will do us harm and harm our relationships. We thank you that you have uh, already paid the price for our sin and your Son, our Saviour Jesus Christ. Lord, help us always to listen to him, in whose name we now pray. Amen.